Welcome back to Sleep for Performance Radio. Today I am joined by now Dr. Charlotte Gupta. The last time you were on, Charlotte, you weren't a doctor and now you have successfully passed your PhD. So congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, hopefully this is, I'll sound smarter, but who knows? <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know if you're anything like me. I just, uh, I might, it might sound smarter, but I feel dumber. So, um, yeah, yeah, I don't think much has changed. <laughs> <laughs> More questions to be answered. So, yeah. Sharla, since you were last on, you spoke about your PhD research. Uh, what's changed for you in terms of work and your research focus at the moment? Yeah, so um, my PhD focused on the impact of different meal size during the night shift on performance. Um, so, chrononutrition and the timing of eating for shift workers um, and since then I was lucky enough to get a postdoctoral position at Central Queensland University so uh, still in Adelaide but part of Central Queensland University um, at the Appleton Institute so working with a great team there looking at a whole bunch of shift work and health behaviour type things um, and I'm currently working on a project looking at the impact of breaking up sitting during the day uh, for shift workers on their health and their performance. So shifted focus a little bit from nutrition to physical activity as another health behaviour, but still very much wanting to continue my nutrition research. So with that then, Charlotte, are you also looking at the relationship with sleep and physical activity and what impact that has? Yeah, so we're getting people in the lab and breaking up their sitting in people that have slept for nine hours and then those that are sleep restricted and looking at some differences. Mm, very interesting. Probably uh, a bit timely as well with COVID. A lot of yeah. people have been saying with the uh, sort of isolation slash restriction of movement that they've been sitting down a lot more, haven't had that incidental movement, going out for a coffee, getting lunch, walking to meetings. So they've been kind of stuck in a chair all day and they're feeling quite, um, well, anecdotally, they're saying they're feeling quite tired from just looking at the screen yeah. and sitting in a chair. So it'll be interesting to see if there's a correlation with physical activity or some incidental movement and uh, improvement in sleep. Yeah, it does feel like with the current circumstances, a lot of people are doing shift work when they weren't normally diff doing different shift times and all their behaviours are messed up. Yeah, I, I think so. It's going to be really interesting to see what comes over. Yeah. Right. We will uh, jump into your paper, Sherlock. Now, like all good papers, it's got a long rambling title. I don't know why we do. I don't know why we do this, but uh, <laughs> I'm just as guilty as everybody else. Yeah. Um, so your article is titled Hot, Tired and Hungry, The Snacking Behavior and Food Cravings of Firefighters During Multi-Day Simulated Wildfire Suppression. So this paper is, uh, one thing I like about this paper, Charlotte, is anybody can read this. It's open access mm. on the uh, journal Nutrients. So we'll put the link in the show notes for this. But do you want to give us a bit of a background, Charlotte, about this paper and how it came about? Yeah, so I uh, the data collection for this was done uh, actually in back in 2012 and 2013. So I wasn't around for the actual data collection. So I can't take credit for everyone's hard work collecting the data. That was um, Sal Ferguson and Grace Vinson and Melanie Sprater from CQU and then um, Brad Isbert from Deakin along with some others. Um, and they've published a lot of the main, I guess, physiological outcomes of this research so looking at the impacts of multi-day um, simulated wildfire suppression on things like heart rate and cortisol and those sorts of things um, but they also had a lot of 
eating data that was, I guess, kind of left over. And I came on board and thought that it was a really good opportunity to look into that sort of data now that we know, because back in 2012, the eating side of things wouldn't have even been really um, looked at in research. It's definitely more of a recent thing to try and understand eating behaviours. And yeah. so, um, yeah, I really wanted to look at how the participants, so the firefighters, ate during the study and how that sort of interacted with some of those other outcomes. And so if we think, if we go back to your PhD thesis, Charlotte, this is what you actually looked at. You looked at different snacking behavior, sorry, different eating strategies on night shift, um, if I get this right. And you basically had three different things you were looking at was basically eating during the night like you would during the day, uh, which is one. The next one was snacking throughout the night. And the last one was basically fasting throughout the night. And the outcome was that snacking throughout the night was probably best in terms of cognitive performance. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. Exactly right. Yeah. So we gave them the different types of meals. They had the same amount of food every day. So all conditions had the same amount of food. It was just the timing of it. And we found that yeah. having that snack during the night was best. Yeah. Okay. Just for listeners who may not have uh, heard your last podcast, we discussed that there was a uh, research papers in depth. Um, so with this study that was collected, with this study that you're uh, writing up now or that's been published in Nutrients, Mm -hmm. Um, obviously the relationship here between, you know, heat, sleep restriction and food, we've got all these three different things happening at once. What do we know from the current literature about this? And the reason I'm asking is because this is very common in athletes who might go and train in, in heat. It's also mm -hmm. common in particularly maybe let's say underground mining who might work in the heat. It's typical in open cut mining in places of, of Australia. Um, so we see all these other kind of industries or oil and gas that might have it as well. So what do we know generally about these relationships before we look at it in the context of firefighters? Yeah, so what I think is was really interesting when I was getting into this literature was we kind of know in an eating context the impact of sleep restriction on eating, the impact of hot temperature on eating, physical activity on eating, but it was combining them that was that sort of hasn't been done, but is very much on shift. So for any of those workers that you've mentioned, it's not just one thing on its own that's impacting their behaviour. So, you know, sleep restriction can lead to an increase in uh, food consumption, particularly fats and carbohydrates. Um, hot temperatures can lead to a decrease in wanting to eat or a decrease in appetite. Um, physical activity obviously can make you feel hungrier after you've burned a lot of energy to replenish that energy. Um, but it was combining all of them. So conditions where people are working in hot conditions, they're also doing hard work, so physical activity. And then often, as with a lot of shift workers, it's hard to fit sleep into the whole routine. So it was combining all of them. That was really interesting. Yeah, and it's really interesting when I look at the, uh, the introduction and background of this paper that um, which is quite interesting because it's similar in athletes. Physical mm. performance is not really affected by by the heat, but cognitive performance is negatively affected under these conditions. So while they can, we see this in probably sleep restriction as well, people can maintain uh, physical performance over you know many days or even weeks, but it's the cognitive mm. performance that is the first to go. So it's interesting that um, this is from the previous literature this is something that needs to be taken into account because as you say here in the intro it's 
concerning given that firefighters are often tasked with making safety critical decisions and this could be the same, yeah. the same for the rest of industry as well mm -hmm. yeah definitely yeah so um the typical firefighter in the context you're looking at charlotte for people who may not be aware what typical what typical tasks or activities would these firefighters generally be involved in would it be uh firefighting in a city center in um, residence such as a four-bedroom house is it fighting uh, wildfires bushfires scrub fires already in industrial settings what type of work do these firefighters generally do that you've been looking at yeah so in the group that we're looking at it's more of the um volunteer firefighters or rural firefighters who are working uh, in wildfires bushfires so not uh metropolitan areas but out in the sort of extreme bushfire conditions. So um, another reason that this was particularly important for us to sort of go back and look at this data was because of the recent fires in Australia and how um, much awareness we all had of how hard the firefighters were working in those extreme conditions and understanding the effects of those sorts of conditions on the actual workers uh, was sort of extra important around that time. Yeah. And is it fair, is it fair to say, Charlotte, like that these type of firefighters would generally have more long or longer sort of sustained activity as opposed to a, a metropolitan based firefighting group? Yeah. So it's kind of periods of time where it's um, really, like you said, sustained activity and then maybe sort of middle part of the year there's less, but it's in those high fire seasons. It's kind of all they're doing is constantly sort of fighting these bushfires and yeah really sacrificing behaviors like sleep and uh eating and those sorts of things that i guess we kind of take for granted yeah so we know we know um we, we just discussed there briefly about the effect it may have on performance such as cognitive performance and physical performance do we know what effect or the impact that sleep restriction or sleep laws would have on eating habits of uh, firefighters in general do we know that uh, so there has been studies that have looked at metropolitan firefighters um, and looking at that population and when people are eating and why people are eating. So there's some really great work um, from Bonnell, which I think was a Monash paper, um, looking into the eating habits of workers. Uh, didn't really go into sleep restriction as much, but it was really about the huge social impact of eating and um, how we're finding that pattern again that we find in a lot of other shift workers where in different shift schedules it's the timing of eating that changes rather than the amount of food um, but adding in that sleep restriction portion hasn't really been looked at and particularly in wildland firefighters who are dealing with potentially more extreme conditions and for sort of a more acute period of time potentially. Yeah and it's probably important to note that um, in this paper, you were looking at um, during, like, well, assimilation of wildfire activities. So it's not, you're not typically looking at, um, I suppose, periods of an activity where they're sitting around waiting for a call mm. around some sort of uh, fire station house, so to speak. They're not just sitting around there and, um, you know, relaxing and watching TV with no event. You've actually replicated, what they've done in the study here is replicated the actual events. Is that correct? Yeah, so um, a lot of effort was put in by the co-authors to make sure that it was as 
I guess, realistic as we can get in a simulated environment. So they were actual firefighters who participated. They were wearing their normal equipment. So we had that effect of the equipment and the uniforms and all of that. There was the heat. And then they were doing their normal, um, I guess, the tasks that they would normally do in a wildfire environment. So we had to try and keep it as realistic as we could to really study these effects. Excellent. All right, Shara, let's kick into the... Um the sort of the, the materials and methods as we uh, as we say um, can you give us a quick overview of the participants which you were talking about there in terms of clothing and so on so can you give us a bit of a rough breakdown on demographics of who you had in this study yeah so they were uh, both volunteered and volunteer and salary rural firefighters so people that had experience working in these environments fighting fires used uh, experience with the extreme conditions and the sleep restriction um, they were a fairly sort of standard group for firefighters. So um, they were uh, relatively healthy, um, I guess in the older age bracket, um, so mean age of sort of uh, late 30s, early 40s. Which be, again, be, be, care, be careful here now, Charlotte, up, because I, yeah, I, 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 I might be a few standard deviations away from this myself. So yeah, um, I didn't think I, mean, I was going to get myself in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, typical for this uh, population for fire for real firefighters and volunteer firefighters um, but I think that was the key thing when recruiting the participants was to have this group as representative as we could of actual firefighters yeah and if I look at the table here as well it's interesting with the different conditions that they're assigned to so you've got the control group the sleep restriction group the uh, the heat group so to speak or the hot group and then you got the com combination of the hot group and the sleep restricted group and if you look across them numbers are fairly balanced um the ages are quite similar the ratio is interesting of male to female because uh males heavily heavily outweigh, outweigh females in terms of numbers here is that representative of of the fire service in general yeah so that's i guess what you typically find in Rural firefighters is that it's a largely male uh, group, and I think that's um, maybe representative of the huge amount of like physical work, and that it is um, typically male. Although the female participants are, you know, just as valid as firefighters, and there are increasingly more females in the sort of country fire service and uh, other sort of services as well. Yeah. And then uh, height and body mass was uh, quite kind of within normal standards. I think for Australia, about five foot ten or one seventy eight, and anywhere from sort of uh, eighty four up to ninety four kilos. But BMIs then in the overweight bracket, some tipping on the obese. Um, do you think that was pretty standard or reflective of general firefighters? Yeah, I think particularly for um, maybe not for metropolitan firefighters, in which the sort of um, fitness requirements are different to volunteer workers or those that it's not their whole career or their whole job it's more what uh, volunteering for in times when there are fires so um, potentially doing other work or I guess it's a more sort of average person than a typical firefighter metropolitan firefighter yeah okay excellent all right and quite high numbers here as well overall which is uh I think a real great strength of this study I had 66 participants, 56 of them being male, um, obviously, and the remaining 10 being female. But that's a lot of firefighters to have in a study. Yeah, it's a great sample. And um, I think as 
why we had such great data coming out of it. And from talking on hearing talks from other co-authors, they were really um, enthusiastic group to provide research and really wanting to help out with us wanting to find out more about the sample. That's great. Yeah, it's good. It's good that people are um, engaged because there's nothing worse than having a cohort that don't want to be there. So it's uh, it's great yeah. when you have them enthusiastic and involved. All right, Charlotte, do you want to give us a bit of an overview of the experimental design? We touched on some of those uh, conditions there. Would it be good if you could give us a run through of each condition and, and what they were doing? Yeah, so um, the, the participants were split into sort of groups of around three to five and they stayed uh, in an environment for five days. So there was three experimental days within that. And then each day was split into um, doing what we call a two-hour work circuit. And that uh, consisted of many tasks that firefighters would be doing uh, in the actual firegram. So simulating those sorts of tasks like um, using hoses, uh, different hose works, uh, using rakes, tyres, a lot of different tasks that are quite uh, reflective of what tasks people would be doing in wildfire suppression work. So we have, we made sure and talked to different um, groups that do these tasks that they were considered really physically demanding and were also accurate to the tasks that people were doing. Um, they also did some cognitive tasks that are more lab related tasks so more like a reaction time task um, that are also operationally valid so the sort of things that you'd have to be doing on a fire ground like reacting fast to things and making tough decisions uh, but in a way that we can do it in a lab so all participants were doing those sorts of tasks and we had the different conditions that you mentioned where we manipulated the temperature in the environment and also how much sleep they had so there was a control group, which is, I guess, the, the basic group where there was no added intervention. So the temperature was set at about 19 degrees Celsius. I'm not sure what that is in other types. Um, and eight hours sleep. So I guess the kind of basic uh, ideal environment. So not too hot, not too cold and a good amount of sleep. There was a sleep restricted group. So they had four hours of sleep those experimental days so um, a lot less than the recommended eight to nine hours a hot group so they had the hotter temperature of 33 degrees celsius so uh, considerably hotter um, and they still had the eight hours of sleep so they were just dealing with heat and then there was a hot and sleep restricted group so this is i guess the most extreme condition that we looked at but probably the most realistic which is 33 degrees temperature when they're working and four hours sleep. So the most extreme temperature that we looked at and the least amount of sleep. So they were all doing the same tasks, but just had those different amounts of temperature manipulation and sleep manipulation to deal with. Um, and then the food side of things was what I was really interested in. Um, so they had set meal times. Uh, but in between those mealtimes, so in between breakfast, lunch and dinner, they had um, ration packs, which again is very similar to the real world. We made sure that it was the sort of snacks that they're having in the real world and that that is the sort of typical way that 
meeting happens where you've sort of given a group of snacks and that's your sort of rations for the day for whatever you're doing that day on while you're fighting fires. Um, and there were things like apples, crackers, um, biscuits, snakes. So they ranged from like lollies um, to muesli bar and apples. So they were sort of all typical snacks that I guess we would eat, non-firefighters, but were just given in a pack for each day. Right, so slightly different in ration packs that people have in the military. There wasn't actually, actually a meal in it. It was just, like you say, biscuits, um, lollies, muesli bars, barbecue shapes, crackers, sultanas, and apple, things like that. So it wasn't actually, yeah. you, you didn't have a meal in it, so to speak. Yeah, so they're kind of the, the supplementary, the snack things throughout the day in between the main meals. And, and was that in addition to their main meals, you're saying? Yes, yeah. Okay. So they had standard meals and then uh, at the start of the day they were given one we call ration pack, which was all of those snacks and they could sort of eat whatever they wanted out of that at any time during the day when they weren't doing testing. Excellent. All right. And so then Shara as well, you asked some questions around hunger and cravings and and, and sort of what they what they wanted. Um, were they self-reported just scales or um, was there some sort of objective way to measure that or how, how was that used? Yeah, so um, it was sort of standard questions like how hungry are you, how satisfied were you with your meal, how full are you, and they were straight um, self-report scales. They could just sort of make a mark on a line and tell us the hunger of things throughout the day. We also looked at cravings, so if they were craving something or if they weren't, and then we split all the different types of foods they were having. So if they were craving something sweet or something fatty, something salty, um, they could indicate any of those sorts of things as well. Excellent. So we had um, the cravings, the hunger. We knew what snacks they were having. We knew what food they were having. We knew the cognitive tasks. We knew the physical performance tasks. We also had measures of sleep from actigraphy devices as well. So we had lots of these different measures. Mm. Um, and then we put them all into a mixed model analysis. Now, we don't touch a lot on stats in this, um, in this podcast, but I am interested. How would you describe uh, a mixed effects and over a mixed model analysis with an over what exactly is that and what are you trying to do with it oh good question so i <laughs> am definitely not a stats expert i have done a lot of mixed models uh in my time so far i think it is my favorite type of analysis um but uh the really key part about a mixed model is that it takes into account the within subjects differences so our participants were doing um three days of the same thing so it's comparing the same participant on each day so comparing themselves to themselves um, but also takes into account in this analysis that we have different conditions so they're comparing a participant to themselves within a group to see any changes from baseline for themselves and then also looking at the different conditions so if that difference is similar to from one condition to another um, so yeah, when you have big lab studies like this, where you've got different conditions, but also repeating measures, then mixed models are the best way to go for that. So in the context of where we are, because we're recording this on the 4th of May, so this, this may, or not, may or may not be released during a COVID isolation period, but this could be typically, uh, I could measure myself short up before 
COVID, I could measure my daily food intake, my physical activity, and my sleep. Then during COVID isolation, I could look at those measures again and then post. And this is what a mixed model would be looking at, is those three different conditions with myself across those three different measures. Is that correct? Yeah, and then you might have a between groups where you look at someone else who's older and someone who's younger or someone who's a different gender or a different group where you're then comparing the different the changes that you went through, that if those changes differ in another group. So it's really just a little level up from uh, two repeated measures in over. Yeah, often there's a lot more measures than the two, I think is the key sort of difference. Is that you can put in a whole bunch of factors and look at what influences what. Right. I'm just making a note here because maybe I need to get some training off you on mixed <laughs> models after this because uh, it's something I'm looking at at the moment is, is uh, upgrading my... Uh, statistical knowledge especially during uh, this time with all the health data in the paper it's really good to, yeah. be, uh, to be looking at all of these things so yeah okay um right let's get into the results so uh there's lots of information here it's really cool um but i'd like for you to tell us Charlotte, what did you find or what do you think was the most in- interesting finding from this paper yeah so i going into this didn't really know what to expect get out of the results so was quite excited to get into it and see what we would find um, because like I said there hasn't really been anything that's looked at eat and sleep restriction together on food intake so it was quite exciting and I think the key thing that I thought was really interesting that match, matches up really nicely with other research in other groups is that um, the different conditions so sleep restriction hot and then sleep restriction and hot there wasn't any difference in overall intake from the snacks or the amount of um, snack off, I guess, kilojoules or different macronutrient intakes. The total amount of those things that participants ate didn't differ. It was the timing of eating that changed. So again, this matches really nicely with previous literature that um, in many shift working industries and in many different shift types, it's the timing of eating that changes rather than the total amount per day. Um, so I thought that was really interesting and really cool that it, it shows that even in these extreme conditions, there seems to be this real overall pattern amongst all shift workers that timing seems to be key. And so when you speak about time in Charlotte, what, what is the best time to eat a snack then for performance? So we didn't... Um, look at it in terms of what the best time was on the outcomes although that's sort of the next I guess, step that we could look at with this data and in future projects we looked at what time they seemed to be if there was a pattern where people were eating at certain times because we didn't know if there would be and there does appear to be where uh, between lunch and dinner so that sort of after lunch post-lunch dip in energy that I'm sure we're all um, very familiar with and I know especially just working at home, that's when I'm looking to snack most. Um, so we found that in the firefighters, but particularly those that were hot and sleep restricted or just dealing with the hot temperature, they ate the most during that post-lunch mm-hmm. time. So it seems to be the challenge of dealing with that extreme heat um, was leading to people having more food then. Mm. Very interesting. And then what about with the measures of uh, craving and hunger? Was there any relationship between those and the snacking time? 
Yeah, so this was another really interesting finding and might be some of my favourite graphs I've ever made. Um, <laughs> sent them to people and tried to get people as excited as I was. Um, but hunger didn't change or wasn't different through the conditions. So it had the standard pattern where less hungry after you've had breakfast, hungry leading into lunch, not hungry immediately after lunch, but then hunger rises to dinner. So that's sort of the standard um, pattern we'd expect from people and also matches rhythms of leptin and ghrelin, so rhythms of hunger hormones. Um, but there was no difference between the conditions. So those in the hot condition, sleep restricted, hot and sleep restricted control, there was no difference in their reportings of hunger, their reportings of fullness, or whether they were craving anything. So even though the timing changed, and even though after lunch, um, hot and sleep restricted people were eating more, they weren't feeling hungrier. Mm. Very interesting. So Charlotte, a lot of people might think, um, well, if they're sleep restricted, yeah, sure, they're going to snack more because they're, they've been awake longer and they're doing more activity and therefore they need more calories to sustain their energy across the day. Um, is, is, that, is that true? Do we, do we need more calories and, and do we need more snacks, so to speak, or need more food because we're awake longer? Is that helping with our cognitive and physical performance? Yeah, so in general, the literature shows that when we're sleep-restricted, we do have more food, especially um, carbohydrates and fats. The question about whether we need more food is a bit less uh, explored. Um, so we definitely uh, have greater, like, need more energy, I guess, in a sense, when we're sleep-restricted, but whether that's significant or whether that relates to how much more we actually eat is, I think, unknown. So um, what I'm really interested in is looking at the other reasons why people might eat when they're sleep-restricted um, or when they're dealing with hot temperatures or things. And I think that's where these results come in, where people who were sleep-restricted after lunch, they're going to feel more tired than those who aren't sleep-restricted and same with those who are in the higher temperatures. So they're feeling more tired, maybe that's why they're eating, um, because we know that they're not eating in this study because they're hungry. So there has to be these other reasons that people are eating. And was there any um, relationship with the type of snacks that we're having? Because if you look back to the, the ration pack, um, you listed in the table some of the items that were in that ration pack, such as sultanas and fruit and so on. And But then there was things like, uh, barbecue chips, um, jats crackers, so these kind of salty snacks. Did people? Did, was there any? Did you look at the kind of snacks that they went for more so than than others? Was it more like salty type snacks versus sugary versus you know fruit? And um, were people making any choices around those? Yeah. So the cravings for snacks um, weren't any different. So there was wasn't really any cravings reported, and there wasn't really a difference between the types. In terms of what they were eating, um, the main differences we found were for overall energy and then for carbohydrates. So fat and protein didn't really differ between the conditions, but it was high carbohydrate snacks. So things like the crackers and the biscuits um, rather than mm. like sultanas or um, lollies. Mm. Very interesting. Um, 
was that because they had consumed their sugary snacks before that and then that's what was left or is that because of longer sleep restriction or longer periods of less sleep people become more dependent on carbohydrate or more sort of i don't know seek, seek out more carbohydrates yeah so we can't say for sure unfortunately but it does seem to be a pattern um not only in this study but in chiclet literature in general that carbs seems to be the thing that differs between schedules or sleep restricted or not sleep restricted that um high carbohydrate snacks seems to be uh, i guess chosen by shift workers more often especially when sleep restricted um yeah and if that isn't necessarily to do with hunger or craving, it could be because those snacks are potentially more comforting or uh, subjectively they make us feel more alert, they feel more bulky. Um, there could be a whole range of reasons, but carbohydrates does seem to be the thing that changes the most. Yeah, it's interesting because uh, there's no studies on this like a find, but in long, long, um, long, in, in multi-day sports or endurance activities, and even from my own personal experience, being awake for extended periods of time, uh, particularly more than probably 16, 17 hours um, during physical activity, I would generally not be able to consume a lot of sugar and I would go for the yeah. carbohydrate snack. So I'd be like, you know, I'd want a big bag of chips, um, like potato chips, crackers, um, even cooked potatoes or cooked hot chips that had gone cold with lots of salt on them, they were the things that I could um, basically, you know, eat and keep down. Whereas there came a point where, you know, being awake for 24 or 30 hours, that sugar, basically, I just couldn't stomach it, you know. And if I did try and get into me, I'd, I'd feel nauseous or want to feel like vomiting. So, um, yeah, yeah, it's quite interesting. Um, and I haven't seen many studies on that in multi-day sports or endurance sports, but typically that's what endurance athletes will report who do yeah, long distance type rest and over many days, mm. same sort of thing as well. So quite interesting to see how we, we go for the carbohydrates, which uh, might be hard for some of those people on the uh, carb restricted or yeah. low carb or paleo, low, uh, paleo type diets. Yeah. 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 I would like to do a study about um, looking into the prevalence of all those diets in shift workers, because I'm sure it's not as much as in the sort of non-shift worker Working nine to five, I think it's a bit easier to fit the keto life into your routine. Yeah, I think it's I think it's very interesting, and I've tried all of those type of diets, and I yeah. know my, I know myself that low carb doesn't suit me because I turn into an asshole. Um, yeah. I'll just be honest. Yeah, my mood goes. I just can't, and I've done it for weeks and months on end, and I just I can't seem to do it. I'm very carb dependent. Yeah, and uh, maybe I'm just a stereotype, and I'm Irish, and I like potatoes. But you know what? That's just it. I do. <laughs> yeah, you can say that. I can't say that. <laughs> um, so, Charlotte, this this study has been really interesting. Um, lots of good findings over. What do you think is the future of of this study in terms of application to firefighters or other similar type shift workers? I think, in terms of um, specific applications to firefighters, it shows that um, well, firstly, that they're eating behaviours, and when firefighters are eating. Uh, on their shifts is important to look at because this is really the first study that's looked at it in wildfire situations. Um, and then for providing foods, it shows that um, in terms of when to supply ration packs, we know the certain times of day. So after lunch is when firefighters might be wanting to eat more, um, not necessarily that they're hungrier, but 
are wanting to consume more food, so potentially making sure that there's more available then. Um, and in general, I think it really adds to our understanding of eating behaviours of shift workers in general and how even though there's never going to be a one-size-fits-all approach for all industries and all shift types, um, it's really important to find the similarities between eating habits and that it is the fact that the timing of food intake changes even in extreme conditions like heat and sleep restriction rather than the amount of food I think really helps our general understanding of uh, the eating behaviours of shift workers. Excellent. So, Charlotte, what's next for you? What's the next couple of projects you're going to be working on? So, we, uh, well, we're a bit paused at the moment in data collection, but when I can get back into the lab, we're going to keep going on our um, new study looking at breaking up sitting um, and the impacts of that for sleep restricted and non sleep restricted and night shift versus day shift. And that's looking at both uh, health, so cardiometabolic health and cognitive performance. So, I'm really excited to get back into that because that's been a really fun data collection. Um, and I really want to continue looking at eating behaviours of shift workers and the timing in whatever way I can, um, whether that's in lab studies or talking to shift workers. Uh, I think it's a really important area to continue. So you really are developing an expertise, Charlotte, in this whole area of chronic nutrition. This is going to be, uh, seems like it's going to be your path forward, is it? Uh, I mean, I don't know about expertise. I hope I know some <laughs> stuff from that piece but... Um, yeah, I think that's really where I'm really interested in and looking at how we can best uh, optimise eating habits to help health and performance. Yeah, look, I think it's a great area um, of research. I think it's one that many people have spoken about for many years. Um, sort of in my 20 years of working across industry, people have always spoke about the relationship with diet, nutrition, sleep and shift work. So it's timely that it's happening. And I think it's applicable to all areas, not just firefighters, but like we said, in mining, oil and gas, mm. rail, manufacturing, and even now with the whole COVID stuff happening across the world, probably in the health and medical arena as well. How can we best, uh, you know, keep alert during shift work or sleep restriction? Because uh, I've heard many stories of medical staff, you know, being awake for long periods of time. So how can we best mm. use sort of nutrition strategies around that to keep alert? So. Yeah, very interesting field um, that you're uh, that you're one of the the few probably leading Charlotte. So it's it's great that um, you know you've come on the podcast to talk about that research, and uh, I want to thank you for your time today. No worries, thank you. It's great to have this sort of platform to get to talk about what I think is really cool research, and um, yeah, always fun chatting about what we're looking at. Excellent. So Charlotte, if people want to get a hold of you, maybe to do some research in their industry or their company, or they might want to have a chat to you about, um, you know, specifics of your research, what's the best way to uh, get in contact with you? Uh, probably either email or Twitter. So on Twitter, I'm uh, cc underscore Gupta and uh, Gupta, G-U-P-T-A. Um, and spending a lot of time on Twitter during this home isolation. <laughs> probably took my time. Um, and then email is uh, c.gupta, again, G-U-P-T-A, at cqu.edu.au. Excellent. We'll put that in the show notes along with the link to this paper as well. Um, so, yeah, that's uh, that's all we have for today. So thanks, Charlotte. Really appreciate it uh, once again. 
and get in contact with Charlotte if you have any questions or you want to maybe embark on some research. Yeah, thank you. All right, thanks, Charlotte. Thanks.